distance balls. Sure, they go far, but do they do anything else? The new ERC Soft does. Callaway completely reinvented the way a distance ball performs. Engineered with a new, fast, hybrid cover and a graphene-infused dual soft-fast core, it's a new kind of distance ball, one that actually feels soft and spins more. And once you're on the green, ERC Soft's triple track technology will help you dial in your alignment. Get Callaway's longest ball with soft feel today at callawaygolf.ca. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and you're listening to 10-3. Today, Emily Jackson speaks with the National Post's Andrew Coyne about what happens if neither the Liberals nor the Conservatives win a majority on Monday. Don't forget you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your audio. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. Andrew, hi. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So this is our last podcast before the election. There are, you know, it's it's the closest election we've seen in a long time. We just spoke about that. Just how close is it? If you go by the projections, the, the polls and the C projections that people are putting out, they're all pretty much in line with each other. Uh, it could be the within a seat or two of each other. If you go back to, you have to go back to 1972 to find an election that close when the Liberals won by two seats in a minority situation. Um, you could well see that on election night, of course, with a great deal of uncertainty. But on, on current numbers, that's what it's looking like. So great deal of uncertainty, but uh, looking like we could be in this minority government situation. At this point in the campaign, in your latest column, you said we've seen this transition from loathing to fear. <laughs> Can you explain what you mean by that tactic? Well, they, you know, every election, everybody promises they're going to run positive campaigns, and then they go in and they slag the hell out of each other. And we've certainly seen lots of personal attacks and negative things and, and hidden agendas on both sides. Uh, I'm not trying to claim who's worse than the other, but they both indulge in it. Um, what you're now getting is, and it was to be predicted if we were in a minority situation like this, is people start conjuring up fearful scenarios of what could be the result of the election. And so on the um, on the liberal side, it's, oh, beware, if it's a conservative government, there'll be these terrible cuts and austerity and the, you know, the country will disappear into the into the air or something. Uh, and the, the, the Tories, their equivalent is if the Liberals get in, uh, they'll get into a coalition or, a, or some sort of governing arrangement, it need not be a formal coalition, with the NDP and or the Greens. So, and, and that will mean, you know, spending will go through the roof and the country will be bankrupted. So they each have their doomsday scenarios uh, if they themselves are not elected. But these doomsday scenarios don't necessarily have a a basis on truth. You know, when we look at the conservatives and the liberal platforms, the spending promises are fairly similar. Why do you think they're embracing this tactic when it might not be grounded in reality? Well, because they're in politics and people <laughs> people always want to exaggerate the stakes. Every election, everybody always says the stakes have never been higher. The choices are so stark. And every election, they try, in fact, to minimize their differences on a range of fronts more particularly on issues where they think they might lose on. So before the election, you saw the Tories, for example, shifting from saying they were going to balance the budget in two years to balancing it in five because they knew they weren't going to win on that basis. And you saw the, the liberals uh, changing their immigration and refugee policy, tightening it up in ways that uh, were a lot closer to what the conservatives were talking about. Whether either move was right is not not the issue. Is they were They were trying to minimize their differences and minimize their potential for losing. Uh, yeah, so if you look at the 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 amount the Tories are promising to spend, it's about an, a percentage 
you know, one and a half percentage points less over the next four years than the liberals projected in their 19, 2019 budget, which was six months ago. There are differences. There are differences in priorities. They, the Tories would have to spend less and there would be some cuts. But the, the notion that it would be some terrible uh, bleak austerity regime, I think, is a bit overstated. The other problem with the liberal um, scare story in this is it only happens if the Tories get a majority. Um, it's hard to see how the Tories can form a government in a minority unless they're very close to a majority. If they have a very strong minority, and this gets into a little bit of the sort of game theory of these things, is it depends how to either form a government or or to oppose a government depends how many parties have to line up against you and have to have to be aligned with each other. What Stephen Harper found, for example, when he was in the minority government was... Which he was in 2006 and again in 2008. That's right. And he managed to survive in power for five years. How? Because uh, to force an election, you had to get all three opposition parties at the time to, to sort of pull the plug together. And their interests don't always align that way. If one's up in the polls, the other one's going to be down in the polls. And so he was able to kind of skate through without any formal agreements with anybody. He just kind of, you know, bullied his and bluffed his way through. So it's conceivable that if the Tories have a very strong minority, that they could do something like that. If they're down where they are now at like 130 seats, it's much harder to see how they could do that. What is the other option? You know, you can you can do what the Harper government did in those years and try to get by on a minority without a formal coalition. What are the more formal choices, say, if the left does splinter and does decide to join together? Yeah, the, the, the two main ones that you hear talked about is one is a formal coalition, which are common in other countries, but not very common in Canada. And that's where you divvy up cabinet seats and you sit around the cabinet table together and you basically govern together. Um, it, it doesn't tend to happen in this country, I think, because the leaders in our system are so dominant. Uh, the prime minister's prerogative to choose a cabinet is something he's very unwilling to, to give up. And it just seems to be not part of our tradition, but it doesn't mean it couldn't happen. The more common thing you might see in this country is what's called a something version of this, of a, what's called a supply and confidence agreement, which is on, on supply bills, on budget bills and other types of confidence motions, the smaller party agrees to support the larger party. And so they have a, you know, some sort of time limit on it, some fixed time where we say, we will not bring the government down during that period, you know, if, if certain conditions are met, et cetera. Uh, and you could well see something like that between the liberals and the NDP or the liberals and the NDP and the Greens. And again, the numbers are going to be important as to whether you can form a, a majority with only two parties or whether you need three parties. And those the, the more partners you have to have, the more rickety the contraption can become. Speaking of rickety partners, the conservatives really are in a position where they don't seem to have a lot of options for partnership. The NDP has you know, sworn it won't partner with the conservatives, the Greens say no, and the conservatives say they won't partner with the bloc, which is having a bit of a resurgence in popularity in Quebec. Where does that leave the conservatives if they are in this position of looking for someone to support their government? Well, the first thing you said, of course, is, is you know, read the fine print on these vows pretty carefully. I, it is election promises. Vows should be believed with a grain of salt. I, I seem to recall before 2008, for example, remember the coalition crisis there, Stéphane Dion saying, oh, I'll never form a coalition with the other parties. And even Stéphane Dion um, managed to think again about it. So that's one thing. And secondly, of course, people can get very flexible about their policy positions as well when they're anywhere near power. And so people who had said, oh, I, you know, come hell or high water, I'll do X or Y in my platform, you may find that gets jettisoned pretty quickly. So nothing is set in stone. Nevertheless, it's probably, it's more likely than not that the conservatives would have trouble finding support from either the NDP or the Greens. 
and they've got to be very careful how they deal with the block. Uh, this is a party that maybe it's put separatism on the back burner, but it's still a separatist party, and it would not be greeted well in the rest of the country to see the Tories in any kind of formal arrangement with the bloc. Well, especially in Alberta, um, given the energy conflicts between Quebec and Alberta, you can imagine that would be a, a tough line to dance for the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean, it's it's trickier, I think, with, I mean, the bloc, I don't think, would be opposed to building a pipeline through British Columbia. They'd just be <laughs> opposed to it to building it through Quebec. The bloc would look at everything through a Quebec lens and would probably be pretty flexible about stuff outside that. Uh, but it's tricky. I think the, the, the Tories would be well advised to be very cautious about any kind of arrangement with the bloc, which means, as I say, it's it's hard to see on current numbers how the Tories uh, are, are able to form a government. Uh, it's more likely you see some form of liberal uh, minority. Where it's going to get interesting and tricky, and we're already seeing evidence of this, is what if the Tories have the most seats and the liberals only have the second most seats? That was the next question I had <laughs> for you, because... I, just today, we had conservative leader Andrew Scheer saying, whoever wins the most seats, even if it's a minority, they should get the chance to form the government. Now, this is traditionally what has happened, but it's not necessarily a requirement. I'm wondering, walk us through what that means. So constitutionally, the way our system of government works is whoever has the confidence of the majority of the, of the, of the MPs in the House of Commons governs. And it doesn't matter whether that majority is made up of one party or two or 12. It's just, you, you know, do you have a majority of the MPs willing to support your legislation? Then you govern. So there's nothing wrong whatever with the party that has the second most seats pairing up with another party or parties if they can form a, a, a stable majority. It's also true that, that you know, in previous situations, when the, when the prime minister of the day looked at it in the numbers and he was in second place, he, he decided, look, I just don't think the, the politics works for this. So people make political calculations about whether they think they can form a government, whether they think it will be stable, whether they want to do it, whether they think public opinion will be sort of receptive. Um, so those are sort of two things that are contending. My, my view is I think if, if, if the conservatives and the liberals are close together, and the liberals are, are in second, uh, and they can form a majority with the NDP and or the Greens, I think public opinion would be okay with that. And we've seen examples of that in recent times in British Columbia, for example. If there's a large gap, uh, if the Tories are close to a majority, uh, uh, rightly or wrongly, I think public opinion might not be quite so uh, uh, okay with that. And it may be that there's an intuition there that the smaller the the the, the the large party isn't a coalition or a, or, a, or a governing arrangement. If the Liberals only had 120 seats, for example, they're in a very weak position relative to their bargaining partners, their, their governing partners. And I think there'd be a legitimate concern that they'd be whipsawed and, and forced into making very large uh, compromises in order to be able to form a government. So people look at these things. I think each, each situation is different. You look at what the the relative bargaining strengths of the parties are, and there's there's judgment calls to be made, and I think there would be judgment calls. I, I would guess if the Liberals were far behind the Tories, they even if the Constitution was on their side, they may not think it was politically wise. And that comes down to, you know, this question of how our electoral system is structured in the first place. Um, the Liberals are in an interesting position because they uh, promised to do some electoral reform last time around. As we all know, that was an absolute failure once they actually came into power and realized, oh, hey, this system has been working for <laughs> us. Right. Um, that said, you know, they're, we're having this conversation again, you know, where the 
the party that winds up being in power may not necessarily represent the majority of voters in a coalition situation or in a minority government situation. How do you think the parties are going to be grappling with that? And how how would the liberals specifically grapple with that when they had promised a different system where there could have been more, uh, I suppose, representation well, exactly. I mean, they the, what they've been saying to voters who might be tempted to vote NDP or Green is what they say every election, which is you can't do that. You're not allowed to vote for the party you prefer. You have to vote for us if you because otherwise you're letting the Tories in. And the whole strategic voting, the thing. strategic voting. So you have a kind of a duty to vote for us, uh, which is you know I think if I were a New Democrat or Green, I'd say wait a minute, you know I I my, my vote is my vote. It doesn't belong to you. I'll decide who who I think is the best opponent to the Tories. But nevertheless, it's an age-old strategy. And as you say, in 2015, the liberals campaigned basically by saying, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to have a system of government where uh, where the splitting of the vote isn't so important. You know, Splitting of the vote only matters when you have when only one person gets in for each riding, uh, even if they have a minority of the vote. That's how our system, unfortunately, works right now. But when you can accommodate more than one member for riding, when you can have a more representative array of the, of the, of the, the, the representation in the riding, of the differences of opinion in the riding, then splitting of the vote doesn't become so important and you can vote for the party of your, of your choice in, a good, in good conscience. So it's a bit ironic, to say the least, to have them now coming back, having failed to, to follow through on that promise and basically using the same old arguments and the same old squeeze play again. If we do get into a minority situation where they are dependent on the support of the NDP and or the Greens, it'll be interesting to see how hard those parties, which have traditionally stood for proportional representation in electoral reform, whether they make that a condition of their support. Probably they won't because it, they don't have enough um, – the public isn't necessarily clamoring for it. Uh, um, but it, it wouldn't necessarily – it wouldn't be somewhere in the mix. Uh, um, they have a strong self-interest as parties. It's not just that they that they are highly principled on this. Like every party, they're also advocating their own self-interest. Um, and it would certainly, I think, make it part of the discussion at any rate. It could be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. What else are you going to be keeping your eye on in the final days of the campaign? Do you think there's enough time for the polls to break away and get a little bit less balanced uh, in this very tight horse race between the conservatives or the liberals? It's certainly possible. I mean, I've rarely seen an election in which the two major parties have been so static. I mean, there's basically there's the Tories have been, the liberals have been dropping off and the Tories have been dropping off, but they've been so close together. And there hasn't been much switching between them as far as I can see. It's been morally just the, the rise of the bloc and of the NDP. But uh, the last days of an election are crucial, particularly when there's these strategic voting calculations. Polls have been wrong in the past, uh, famously in Alberta and British Columbia. Um, uh, it's a very difficult matter being a pollster these days. People don't answer their phone or they don't tell the truth to the pollster. Um, so you do have to, to leave open the possibility there, there can be shifts at the last second that the polls don't pick up because they didn't poll in the last couple of days. Um, but if you had to bet, you, you know, the trend is your friend. If you had to bet, you would say it's going to look something like uh, what it looks right now. And that's a um, – uh, I don't think anybody before this election really would have laid a lot of money in the idea that the big winners out of it would have been the NDP and the bloc. Uh, they were parties that were both kind of written off uh, for dead more or less. Um, but, uh, but, you know, when expectations are lowest for you, that's maybe sometimes your best uh, – bad in politics is you can exceed expectations. You know. Well, that was the 2015 election in a nutshell, right? The liberals went into it in third place. That's right. Nobody thought they 
That's right. Had a fighting cha- chance. And, and, and Jagmeet Singh, you know, who had been a disaster, frankly, as leader before the election, uh, but obviously has reservoirs of likability and goodwill and, and, you know, seems to get along with ordinary folks and can understand their concerns. And, and people had a good look at him during the debates in particular, and it's pretty clear that's when the NDP surge uh, began. Um, I mean, what that says is that the vote on the left is really loose. It, they're basically their only common feature is they don't like the conservatives, but they can switch back and forth between the liberals and the NDP and the Greens and have been violently all through this campaign. Uh, and that's been to the cost of liberals. So the, the disaffection with Justin Trudeau, who was able to round up a lot of that vote in 2015, there's enough disaffection with them that people are, are their allegiances on the left are quite fluid and they will switch back and forth uh, uh, probably right up until election day. That disaffection, I think, is going to be a big story, too, if there is a minority situation, just given what we've seen so far. Do you think, Trudeau, if the Liberals do get a minority government, you know, and say the Conservatives are fairly close, do you think, or even if the Conservatives get a minority government, but the Liberals are fairly close and try to do a coalition, do you think Justin Trudeau could really pull off trying to maintain his status as prime minister or maintain his power as prime minister without really angering a lot of Canadians that have been disaffected by his leadership. Uh, there'll be lots of people angry, I think, in any scenario. Um, but he, Hey, that's a Canadian politics <laughs> classic. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. I, I, absolutely. He can hang on. You know, when, you know, as long as you've got the levers of power, you've got a lot of advantages on your side. Um, and you, you only have to go back to his father's example. We talked about that 1972 election, which is very similar in many ways to this, where you had a leader come in on a wave of enthusiasm four years previously in, in 1968, fritters it away in the course of the four years, People you know, raises expectations and disillusions people, gets reduced to minority, humiliating. I mean, it'll be a terrible humiliation for Justin Trudeau when people thought he was going to be in for a decade or more. Um, but you know, you suffer humiliations in politics, but you keep going on. And the, the, if history does repeat itself again, what happened in 1974 was the liberals having governed for two years in minority came roaring back with a majority. So if I were Justin Trudeau and the liberals, uh, no reason that couldn't, uh, couldn't happen again, but it's extraordinary that he's in this position where they're now down to 30% in the polls with unemployment at 5.5%, with the economy as strong as it is, uh, that's very unusual. We don't usually toss out one-term majority governments in this country. Uh, so even to be where he is now is extraordinary. And the other thing is you could see both major parties coming in below 33% in the polls. That's never happened in Canadian politics. So it's a bit of a rebuke to both of the major parties that people are sort of looking around now for uh, new and smaller alternatives. And I think both the conservatives and the liberals need to have a good look at themselves and say, why aren't we connecting with Canadians anymore? It may just be that neither of them have particularly inspiring leaders, but it may also be they need to think about what their broader message is to the public. A broader message that will get more people out to the polls. Andrew, thank you so much for the insight. It's going to be an interesting week it next week. certainly will. Thanks again. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to Emily Jackson and Andrew Coyne. More from Andrew at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.